Let's pray before we begin tonight. Father, we thank you so much that in prophecy, even tonight, you have reminded us just of the way that you've protected your word. And Father, we do thank you for those lovely men and women of God who over many, many centuries have fought for the word of God. Father, we just bless you for them. And Father, we pray that in these days in which we live, Father, we should indeed be faithful servants to preserve the truth revealed in the Word of God. Oh, Father, I know that in this land today there are many, many sermons given, many, many talks, and yet, Father, so few are really in detail on the Word of God. We would ask, even for our own land, Father, that we should be a nation that turns back to God, turns back to your Word, and starts seeking out the glorious truths that are in your Word. Father, we know that the really godly nation, Father, is the nation who takes a copy of the Bible everywhere, whose people follow your word. Father, we ask that we indeed, Lord, should be people of the word. We should be people who know your word, who live by it, and who are able to give an account to every man concerning the hope that is within us. Father, we delight tonight to talk about your son Jesus and to talk about the fact that he is divine, that he is God himself. And Father, I would ask, even as I speak, Lord, that your Holy Spirit is going to be the one who speaks. Father, we confess that these things are beyond us in the natural man, and yet they are perfectly fitted for us in the spiritual. And we would ask, Lord, that we should speak spiritual truths to spiritual people, and that, Father, together we should be mightily blessed. Oh, Father, just come and pour your happiness upon us tonight. May we enjoy your word. May we devour it and may it be sweet in our mouths even tonight. Oh, Father, just bless us with that oil of salvation. Oh, we praise your wonderful name. May Jesus be glorified even here tonight. In the name of Jesus, I ask it. Amen. Praise him. Amen. Amen. By this time, you will know that I love the Trinity. I think it's two times ago that I explained how I first became interested in the Trinity. But tonight, I want to talk about the Trinity from the New Testament, and I want to show you just a few verses, because I've had to cut out an awful lot of verses, just a few verses that I've researched into from the New Testament that quite clearly demonstrate that our God is a triune God, three persons and yet one in essence. I have to admit immediately that my researches in the New Testament began with an absolute disaster. Have you ever had one of those experiences where there's a knock at the door and you open it and there are two ladies gazing at you with a, and one of them is carrying a bag or perhaps both of them are carrying a bag and they immediately say to you, are you worried about the state of the world? <laughs> and now, of course, I can tell before I open the door that this is a Jehovah's Witness knock on my door. And now, if they ever come to my door, which is not frequent, may I say, I think I'm blacklisted these days, but uh, if I ever go to the door, I immediately say, oh, you're Jehovah's Witnesses, aren't you? You know, I like to identify the sport that we're about to have. And, and uh, in the early days, however, when I was a young Christian, I was full of enthusiasm and the minute these people began speaking to me, on one particular occasion, I really didn't know who they were. And eventually they got round to the fact that they were watchtower people, and that didn't ring a bell either. And soon they went on and on about the Bible. And I said, oh, well, I'm fascinated about the Bible. 
And of course, as soon as I began to speak, it was obvious to all of them, to both of them, as it were, but obvious to anyone, that I was full of enthusiasm, but not very much knowledge up here. Paul would have said, you know, that he has plenty of zeal, but it's not enlightened zeal. All I knew was that Jesus was my Savior, he washed my sins away, and I was filled with the Holy Spirit. And apart from anything else, there was a complete vacuum in my mind. And these two Jehovah's Witnesses must have smiled at one another and thought, good, this is going to be easy. And as soon as they asked me a few questions, of course, I didn't have the slightest idea about the Bible. And they knew their booklets very well. They didn't know the Bible very well, but they did know their booklets very well. And I didn't know my Bible at all well. And before long, they were going through a list of most of their doctrines, asking me, well, what do you believe about this? You know that the Bible says that, don't you? That the hope is Armageddon, not salvation, um, and, and other things like this. And then, after about 20 minutes, I was just twisting around like a top. I mean, I just didn't have the slightest answer for anything that they were saying. They then brought up the divinity of Christ. And they simply said, will you show me, they said, one verse from the New Testament that says that Jesus Christ is God. One verse, that's all. By this time, I mean, I didn't even know what the New Testament was. I was in such a muddle. And vaguely, I, I sat there, they kept talking, and I just couldn't think. And vaguely, one, uh, vaguely John 1.1 1, 1 was coming through. But before I could say John 1.1, 1, 1, they said, and don't you quote 1 John 5 either. I hadn't the slightest idea, by the way, of quoting it. They said, that's not in the original. And then I said, well, I think John 1, 1 says that Jesus is God. Oh, no, it doesn't. And they opened their Bible, which was as black as my Bible, and I thought was the same Bible. And there it definitely said, and I just, I was certain I didn't remember it like that, that the word was a God with a small g. And I thought, well, well. And they said, you see, he was a good man. He was a God in terms that he was a prophet. But that doesn't mean he was divine. And I remember when I closed the door, I felt so ashamed that I had been unable to give a biblical defense of anything. They taught me into the ground. Right? I got on my knees as soon as I got in the room, and I apologized to the Lord. And I said, Lord, I'm so sorry that I've let you down concerning this matter. And I promised the Lord that as far as it was possible within me, I would never be caught on the hop like that again. Right? By the way, two days ago, can you believe it, two Jehovah's Witnesses came knocking at the door in which, uh, of the house in which I was staying in London. It was wonderful. They went reeling down the path, <laughs> finally saying, well, we haven't got time, you know, to talk like this. And off they went. And I thought, praise the Lord, because... After all these years, I'm now able to give a defense. Now, it is the result of the research that I did after that defeat that I'm going to share with you tonight. So, although I'm not going to give a detailed analysis of what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe, if you really can support the deity of Christ, you've already got something which is a major weakness as far as they're concerned, and you are able to debate with them. Let's just turn to the one thing that they said that was right. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 5, and let's begin there tonight. Because they said to me, and don't quote, they said, 1 John 5, 7 and 8, because it's not in the original. And I have to tell you, those of you with the King James Version here, that it was perfectly right. Those of you with a New International Version or a New American Standard Version, you won't find the bits that I'm going to cross out in your Bible. They've already been removed. 
Some good kind monk in about the fifth century decided that God needed a helping hand over the Trinity. So he, as he was copying out a script, he added a bit just to help out. Wasn't that kind of him? As if God needed a bit of help. So let's just turn to this. They are absolutely right about this. The King James Version in 1 John 5, 7 and 8 says this, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Isn't that a wonderful statement of the Trinity? Then it goes on, verse 8, And there are three that bear witness in the earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. And if you have a pencil or a biro, I'm afraid you have to cross out certain words here. If you've got a modern translation, they're already removed. In verse 7, for there are three that bear record are correct. Leave them in. But then a line has to go through, in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. That is not found in the original text. And verse 8, and there are three that bear witness in earth, and all of that has got to be removed as well. But you can keep in the rest of verse 8, the spirit and the water and the blood and these three agree in one. And verse 7 and verse 8 should read this, verse 7, for there are three that bear record. And verse 8, the spirit and the water and the blood and these three agree in one. All right, now with that out of the way, we can now see that we don't need to have that addition in the New Testament for us to be able to see that Christ is divine. And so tonight I'm going through scriptures, and I'm basically going through the New Testament to show you some of the major scriptures, but not all by any means, that point to the deity of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going through uh, tonight's Bible study under four headings. First of all, and this is by far the larger section, we're going to see scriptures that clearly state that Jesus is God, then we're going to see scriptures that clearly state that the Holy Spirit is God. Then we're going to note the fact that Jesus is worshipped in the Gospels and what that means. And last of all, I want to have a look at at least one passage where the Trinity are mentioned together in the New Testament. And after I've gone through these, those of you who don't know your Bible very well, please will you do what I did just after that debacle with the Jehovah's Witnesses. I got an orange pencil and I actually colored in all the verses that had to do with the Trinity. And I thought, well, even if I can't remember them, all I have to do is flick through the New Testament and where I see orange, the Jehovah's Witnesses are goners. You see? Now, if you've got trouble, remember to do that and you'll be all right. Let's begin, first of all, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 1. If this was the only verse in the New Testament that said it, it would be enough. John 1, 1. And here you've got an outright and direct statement of the deity of Jesus Christ. In fact, the three statements here made in verse 1 have to do with the Trinity, as we'll see. It says this, In the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And if you read from verse 1 down to verse 18, you'll see clearly that the Word spoken of here, with a capital W, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. If you go to verse 14, for example, it actually states the fact that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And that is the Lord himself. So in the beginning was Jesus Christ. 
And Jesus Christ was with God, and Jesus Christ was God. That's the statement made in this particular verse. Let's take the second statement first of all, that the Word was with God. And do you see immediately here, even though we have one God, the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father are two separate personalities. And here you see these two separate personalities abiding with one another. But having said that, in case you then think that uh, one of them is not divine but the other is, it then goes straight on to state, the Word was God. Now obviously, the Jehovah's Witnesses and all the cults can't stand that verse. And so what they do, and if you've ever had a look at a King James, uh, sorry, at a Jehovah's Witness Bible, you will see that they retranslate that particular verse. Now here they are, Satan's Witnesses. They've had three weeks of Greek training, and they are able to stand up and say that they understand what no other Greek scholar in all the world understands, that this is wrongly translated in our Bibles. Isn't that amazing? If you ask them to name one Greek scholar, one Greek professor, one Greek lecturer who says that this is wrongly translated, they can't do it. But they have a special knowledge of Greek which enables them to say that it's wrongly translated. Well, can I just tell you this? They are pulling your leg. They always, I have noticed, claim to have vast knowledge of Greek when they have little. In fact, one of their leading members, a man called Russell, in 1913 was actually had up in court. And they were talking to him about whether he'd made false statements. And the, the, one of the defense lawyers said to him, is it true that you know Greek, Hebrew, and Latin? Yes, sir, he says. And that you're fluent in these? Yes, sir, he said. And this lawyer said, well, if I hold up then a card with Greek letters on, you'll be able to just name the Greek letters. Is that right? Yes, sir, he said. And the, the man said, well, I just happen to have some cards with me to do it. And he held up the Greek letter. He got alpha right, as far as I know. And then he couldn't name one other letter. And finally, at the end of it, the man said, I'm going to ask you again. Are you fluent in Greek? No, sir. Do you know any Greek? No, sir. But you claim, he says, to have a special revelation of Greek so that you can contradict every Greek authority. Yes? Yes, sir. That's what he said. And you'll find the Jehovah's Witnesses today still believe that they are the only ones who are right concerning the Greek here. Quite simply, by the way, they notice something in the Greek here. They notice this, that if you take the word word, that's logos, L-O-G-O-S, that it had an article in front of it, ho, logos right? The word. Then they notice you had the verb, was, right? Was. And then they notice that you had the word theos, T-H-E-O-S, God. And what they said was, ah, now you see the word word has got an article, the, in front of it. The word God hasn't, and so should be translated a God. That's what they said. Well, are they right? They are totally wrong. And even though tonight I don't have time to go into it, there is a little rule in Greek called Colwell's rule. C-O-L-W-E-L-L, Colwell's rule. And Colwell was a marvelous fellow, Greek scholar, not born again, but he looked up every single case where you had this type of arrangement. 
where you had the verb to be, where you had a word with an article, and where you had a word without an article, and he tried to see whether there was a rule that you could apply. And quite simply, what he found was this, that the word with the article was to go in front of the verb, and the word without the article was to go after the verb. So in other words, here it's correctly translated, the word was God. Now that's the simple rule that he invented. I've oversimplified it, but that's what he found out. Now, let me tell you this. The Jehovah's Witnesses apply Colwell's rule in every other case where it's found in the New Testament, except in John 1.1. Let me show you a verse, for example, where we have to apply Colwell's rule and where the Jehovah's Witnesses get it right. That surprises us, doesn't it? Let's go to 1 John, right, and chapter 4. 1 John, chapter 4. First of all, verse 8, 1 John 4, verse 8, He that knoweth not, he that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. Now there you've got it. Do you see that? Also down in verse 16, you've got it repeated. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. Now, there's the two statements. God is love. We all agree God is love. Now, in Greek, you can put the words you know in any order at all. It doesn't matter which order you put them in. The Greek itself will tell you which order they should go in. And here you have a very interesting little thing. You've got ho theos. Ho theos. That's God with the article. Then you've got agape, and that's love, and then you've got estin, E-S-T-I-N, which means is. So you've got God, then you've got love, then you've got is. Now the question is, which way round should these words go? Well, Carlwell's rule says this, that the word with the article goes first, God. Then comes the verb, is, and then the word without the article comes afterwards, love. So God is love. If the Jehovah's Witnesses are being logical, what they should say is, God, the God is a love. That's how they should translate it. Or they might even translate it as, love is a God. Right? Either way. But they don't. Isn't that strange? You see? And in every other case, where this same arrangement is, is made, they get it right. Now, the point is, every Greek scholar agrees that the article here simply shows you the word order. And this beloved man, Colwell, went through every Greek text he could lay his hands on to prove that it always applies. It applies in every case without exception. Now, what about that, including John 1.1? So let's go back to John 1.1. I throw that in as a little bit of Greek. If you remember any of it, you'll find they'll leave the Trinity double quick when they come to the door. They've never heard of Carwell, unfortunately. Poor chap. Right? The Word was with God, and the Word definitely was God. Every translator has that, except for the Jehovah's Witnesses, even translators who are certainly no friends of Bible-believing Christians. They've all got it. 
It's right. This is a direct statement of the divinity of Jesus Christ. But it starts off, actually, with the statement of the divinity of Jesus Christ. Do you remember in Genesis 1-1 last week, we saw the statement that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth? Do you remember that statement? Right? In other words, before God started doing it, the heaven and earth didn't exist. Look what this says. In the beginning, when nothing existed that was created, was the Word. The Word was already past tense, as far as God was concerned. Jesus Christ already existed, and he always has. He is the Eternal One. So in this first verse, you have this proof. A, Christ is eternal, therefore God. Secondly, he's a separate personality to the Father. But thirdly, he is God himself. And we could actually, for tonight, close our Bibles and say, QED, that's the end. But there are many other statements as well. Let's go to John chapter 8. And this is one you'll have a fight with the JWs. Now, in John 8, verse 56, a remarkable statement from Jesus. And he uses an, a title that we saw last time. Verse 56 of John 8. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. What a staggering statement. 2,000 years before Abraham had existed. Oh, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Right. And he saw it and was glad. And we know, don't we, that Abraham met the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He met him face to face, which is something you and I have never done. What a remarkable thing. And the Jews listening to this, they can't accept that. Verse 57. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? What's all that about? And here Jesus meets them head on. Verse 58. If you've got an orange pencil, here it is. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. He says. And remember this, that when we use the words, I am, it's normally followed by something. We don't just go and say, oh, I am, and leave it like that. We normally say, I am a boy. I am a girl. I am pretty. I am intelligent. Right? I am just back from Woolworths, or whatever it is. <laughs> but whenever you see the words, I am, not followed by anything, they're a name, they're a title, an official title. And this is the title of God used in Exodus chapter 3 that we saw last time. And here Jesus states this, one, I've seen Abraham, and Abraham's seen me. Two, my official name is I am. The Jehovah's Witnesses say, no, that doesn't mean he's God. Whether they believe it or not, it's quite clear that the Jews in Jesus' day knew that it did mean that, that he was God. How do we know? Well, you see, because John chapter 8 doesn't finish with verse 58. There's another verse to follow. He says, I am, and look at the reaction of the crowd. In verse 59, then took they up stones to cast at him. And in Leviticus 24, 16, stoning was the death the form of death for any man who committed blasphemy. That is claiming that he was God. And they, realizing Jesus here is claiming divinity, pick up stones ready to chuck at him. And it goes on, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. 
Now, if you meet anyone who objects to that, don't stop there, because there'll also be another orange mark in your Bible, two chapters on. Let's just go two chapters on. John chapter 10. And here it's made perfectly clear why they wanted to stone Jesus. Verse 30. John 10, verse 30. I and my Father, he says, are one. That means we are co-equal. And as Father is God, the only way you can be one with him is you've got to be God as well. They knew exactly what it meant. Then the Jews, verse 31, took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those do ye stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. And they understood exactly what Jesus was saying. You see? And they were right. He was claiming to be divine. Now that's a very clear statement. Okay, let's have, another, uh, let's have a look at another place where I am is used in the most wonderful way, again proving divinity. Go to John 18. This is a little passage which I had a revelation about and I think I shared in the Victorious Christian Living series. Now here it is, the betrayal of Jesus. Judas arrives with the band of people and they're coming to arrest Jesus. John 18 verse 3. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said unto him, I am and unfortunately, all the modern translations have added he. The he is not there in the Greek, right? And if you've got a good King James Version, you'll notice the word he is in italics, which means it's not found in the original version. Just put a line through it. I am, he says. And it goes on. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. Now, verse 6 is crucial. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am, cross out the he, they went backwards and fell to the ground. Here they are, fully armed to the teeth. They arrive to take Jesus. Jesus says, I am, his divine title. For a split second, his divinity shines forth on every hand. His eternal power suddenly is revealed. And what's the result? They all go splayed on the floor, right? Call this falling over in the spirit if you like. I think it was something a bit more than that. They all fall fully armed to the ground, not one of them able to move. Why? Because suddenly his divinity has come out. And you might say, why did the divinity of Christ come out at this point? I'll tell you why. To prove to you and to me that no man took Jesus by force, that when Jesus was arrested, he went voluntarily because he was laying down his own life. That's the reason that this is put in. And those people who find themselves on the ground, they couldn't have moved lest Jesus had allowed them to get up and al allowed them to arrest him. And so, look what happens, verse 7. Then asked he them again. And they are all in a heap on the ground. And he said, sorry, um, who have you come to seek, did you say? Fully, fully armed. Whom seek ye? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. 
And in other words, you can come and arrest me. If Christ is not God, I don't know why, in verse 6, they should all fall to the ground. It's that divine title again, used of Jesus himself. Now, there is a passage that deals with the divinity of Christ. Another lovely statement of it, and this is one of the most clear that you find anywhere in the New Testament, comes out of the mouth of Doubting Thomas. In John chapter 20, John chapter 20, and remember, Thomas wasn't there to see Jesus, and he doubts whether he's raised. And so eight days later, Jesus appears again. And in verse 26 of John 20, let's just read it. And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas, without doing it, he doesn't have to do it. Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Direct statement of divinity. If it wasn't true, by the way, Jesus, if he really was a holy man, would have had to say, Don't call me my God. Don't you dare call me, a, a mere mortal, my God. But in fact, it's allowed to stand because it was true. Jesus truly is God. Now there in the Gospel of John, you have quite a number of things. Head for the Gospel of John and you're on winning ground immediately, if ever you're challenged over this. But let's progress and let's have a look at the writings of Paul. Now, let's go to the book of Romans. And if you don't remember any other verse but... John 1 1, please would you remember this next verse? Romans chapter 9, verse 5, because this one verse will tell you instantly what a translation of the Bible is like. Right? Now, if ever I'm handed a translation of the Bible, and you know there are some pretty odd ones around, do you? Good speed, Rotherham's emphatic, Moffat, and other translations that most people have never heard on of NEB as well, New English Bible and other very strange ones. Um, if you're handed one of those and someone says to you, is this a good version of the Bible? It's no use looking at John 1.1 because all Bibles will translate that correctly, except for the Jehovah's Witness Bible, but then they're hard to come by, I'm pleased to say. But Romans 9.5 will give you a key as to whether it's a good translation or not. The King James has got it right. The New International Version has got it right. The New American Standard Version has got it right. Worse Expanded Version has got it right. Rotherham's Emphatics got it right. Young's Literal has got it right. If yours hasn't, I bet I can tell you which ones you've got out there. Let's have a read from verse uh, 3. Romans 9, verse 3, For I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, says Paul about the Jews, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and who, of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God, blessed forever. Amen. Now, there's the statement in the King James. Christ, it says, came who is over all God, blessed forever, full stop, amen. And those of you with the NIV, NASV, you'll all say that's what mine says as well. 
Put your hand up here if your version doesn't say that. Oh, excellent. We are fully converted in this place. <laughs> if you, for example, turn to the New English Bible, right? Or if you have a Moffat translation or one of those, or if you have a Revised Standard Version, which, may I say, was the version of the Bible that I began with in my Christian life. I began reading the Revised Standard until I noticed that it left out certain very important facts concerning the person of Christ. The Revised Standard Version, and I've made a note of this in my margin here, says this, talking about Christ, according to the flesh is the Christ, full stop, God who is over all be blessed forever. Amen. And you see there, it puts a full stop after Christ. In other words, that's the end of that sentence. And then, God who is over all, let him be blessed forever. It divorces Christ from being divine at this point. Now, that's not right. And that's why the Revised Standard Version has to be used with great care. Now, what a lovely rule of thumb this is. Someone hands you a Bible, you've never heard of it, right? The Price Version. And, and they say, is this a good version? And you say, well, knowing the chap, I doubt it. But um, <laughs> immediately, just turn to Romans 9, verse 5, and I bet you I'll have translated it like this, right? Because this is the right way to translate it. There is a verse that clearly says that Christ is God, blessed forever. Amen. All right, a clear verse. So there's one statement. A very powerful passage now in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians and chapter 2. And I would beg you as we're going through these, don't just jot them down and leave them on the pad. Get them into your mind. Because when the Jehovah's Witness knocks at the door, it's no good saying, I've got it round here somewhere. Just a minute. You've got to be ready with these things. All right? Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, which is a very well-known passage indeed. Unfortunately, in the King James, it doesn't come over clearly. In the more modern versions, it does. Look what it says. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, which is a terrible translation, Verse 7, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And you probably know this scripture, and yet did you know it really is a clear statement of the divinity of Jesus Christ? And the key is found in verse 6. There are two parts to this verse. Let's take the first. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Then verse 6, who being in the form of God... Now, that's the first. Now, let's just stop there. The trouble is, the minute we see the word form, we think of shape, don't we? Right? What's, what's the form like? Oh, well, it's, it's like this. And this, apparently, to some people, means that Jesus Christ looked physically like God. That's not the meaning of this word. In fact, this word means this. It's something inside which shows on the outside. And because that definition is so complicated, I'll give you an example in English. 
You might today have been down to the tennis court and seen one of our beloved elders, Norman, playing tennis down there. I don't know whether he was playing tennis, but it's the type of thing he does, right? And you might have said, oh, I saw Norman playing tennis today. He's in good form. And that's what you might say. Now, what you're not saying is, oh, his body is really nice. You're not saying that. What you are saying is, when you say that he's in good form, is this, that by the way he played, you can see that he has inner fitness, right? That he has a vitality about him, that he's skilled in the art of tennis. That's what you mean by form, you see? And to be in good form means that. So in other words, what's in him shows on the outside. On the other hand, you might have seen other of our elders, who shall remain nameless, playing... (laughs) And what you say is, they're a bit out of shape. And you don't mean by that, you know, they're bulging at the seams or anything like that. You simply mean the same as form. They're out of form. They're not fit. And the minute they pick up a tennis racket and ball, you can see they're not fit. You know, they get breathless and all the other things, you see. So in other words, form means this. It's something on the inside that shows on the outside. And when it says here that Jesus Christ was in the form of God, what it meant was this, that for eternity past, when the angels looked at Jesus, they saw clearly that he was divine. He was divine in essence, and it showed in everything that he did. Now that's what we mean. He was in the form of God. That is a statement of the divinity of Christ. But notice how it goes on. Thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The word robbery here means two things. It means what we know of robbery, that is stealing goods that don't belong to you, but it also means this. It means to have a treasure and to hold onto it, to grasp it. That's what it means. And it's better translated here, I think, something like this. Uh, Verse 6. Who, being in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held onto, to be grasped. Now, Jesus was God, and he had a right to appear as God, but he laid aside that right to appear as God, and he took on himself the appearance of an ordinary man. Do you see that that's what it's saying? You see? And this is the humbling of Jesus. May I tell you this? If Jesus is not divine, what does this passage mean then? I mean, how could it have humbled him to have become like a man if he was just a prophet? A prophet is a man. It's not humbling to be a man for a prophet, but it is humbling for God to appear as a man. And here is Jesus Christ, divine, for eternity past. It was obvious that he was divine, yet for you and for me, he laid aside his right to appear as divine and took on the form of an ordinary man so that some people could look at him and just think they were dealing with an ordinary man. That's the most wonderful thing. He did it with you in mind. And not just appearing as an ordinary man, he appeared as an accursed man hanging on the cross of Calvary. Now that's what it's all about. And it's when he appeared in his his humanity that he had humbled himself. This is what he means in John 14, 28, when he says, the Father is greater than I. That's not saying that he's not equal in his divinity. What it's saying is this, in this human form in which I now appear, Father is greater than I than I am. When he was a baby, by the way, a human baby lying in that manger, do you know even Mary was greater than he was? Because Mary was able to do things that that baby couldn't do. That's why Athanasius says 
that Jesus Christ was equal with the Father concerning his divinity, but inferior to the Father concerning his humanity, right? In fact, if we had seen Jesus there, okay, in the manger, we would have been greater than him in his humanity. But remember this, the little baby busy blowing bubbles at his mother was at the same time in his divinity holding the whole universe together. What a staggering thing for us to understand. But that's what this whole passage is talking about. Jesus had the right to appear as God, because he was God. But he laid aside that right, because you needed him to come as a man. That's the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. A powerful passage, that, isn't it? If you understand it correctly. All right, on to Colossians. Let's have another. Let's have another passage. Colossians. Verse 15 to verse 19. A powerful, powerful passage. This is. First of all, we see Jesus in relation to God. Then we see him in relation to the creation. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 19. Verse 15. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And you see, there's a statement. Nothing was created except that Jesus created it. Here is the Elohim who in the beginning created the heaven and the earth. Here he is. It's a positive statement when linked up with Genesis 1.1. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that him in him should all fullness dwell. It's a positive statement that Jesus is divine. When it says in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, it doesn't mean he's a likeness. What it means is he's an exact image, precise in every single detail. That's why Jesus could say, he that's seen me has seen the Father. That's a positive statement. We are co-equal. If you've seen me, you've seen God. You've seen God in his entirety. There's no need, therefore, to see the Father. Not that you can anyway, because no man has seen him at any time. But don't look any further. You've seen me, you've seen all there is to see about God. The fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells in me. That is the statement that Jesus could make. All right, then it goes on. Not only is he the exact image of God, he's the firstborn of every creature. Firstborn. And the Jehovah's Witnesses come along and say, ah, there you are, he was born, you see. He was created. He wasn't eternal. He was actually created. And they say in another place, 1 John, sorry, in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, it says he's begotten of the Father. Ha, ha, ha. He can't be God, can he? Oh, dear, oh, dear. That's not right at all. The word firstborn has to do with his authority. Because, you see, the firstborn in, the, in Jewish society always had the right of rulership over everything else. He is the firstborn. That's the point. He is the one who's head of all creation. He is the one who can exercise authority over all creation. Not only so, he's head of the church as well. Not only so, he's the firstborn from the dead. 
This new creation, this resurrection creation. Who's head of that? Christ is as well. You name it, he's head of it. That's the point that's being made here. He's the firstborn of everything that is. Bless his wonderful name. What about begotten then? Begotten? Ah, yes, indeed. There was a time when nothing existed of the created realm, when only God existed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God the Father planned that there should be a plan called salvation, and for that plan to come forth, he needed a created realm. And when the creation was planned with God, what was the pivotal point? What was the first point that was made about the creation? It was this, that Jesus Christ would come as a man and that he would die, the lamb slain. That was the pivotal point. And when creation occurred, Jesus Christ was the first thought in creation that he, the second person of the Godhead, should come to earth as a man. That's why in Revelation, he's called this, the lamb slain, when from? The foundation of the earth, right? Not slain 4,000 years after the creation, slain from the very foundation of the earth. Before the earth was founded, Christ was already determined to come and to die for the sins of the whole world. That's what it's talking about. He's the firstborn, head over all, head of the church. He is the one who has the right. And that is why when this present creation comes to an end, who's the one who puts it to an end? Jesus Christ comes, right? He returns on a white horse and reigns for a thousand years. That's his position as the firstborn. That's what the passage is talking about. Colossians 2.9, of course, I've already quoted. Here it is. For in him, Jesus Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And for the whole fullness of the Godhead to dwell in Jesus, he has to be God. If he's a little less than God, he's not God at all. And you can't call that fullness. Oh, is this a full pint of milk? Oh, well, almost. If it's almost a full pint of milk, it's not a full pint of milk. And if the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells in my Lord, it means he is fully God. It has to be so. These are statements. All right, these are a bit complicated. Let's get on to a few simpler ones. That, my, one of my favorites is 1 Timothy and chapter 3, which I think we saw in the first talk of the Trinity trilogy. Nice name for these. Right, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16... Paul here is saying that uh, this is a great mystery, the faith that we have. But here it is, 1 Timothy 3 verse 16, but a very clear statement. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. That's Jesus Christ. Justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Who is this God manifested in the flesh? It's Jesus Christ, God himself. That's what that statement means, right? So there's one in Timothy. Another one that I think you ought to add to the list of John 1, 1 and Romans 9, verse 5, is found in the book of Titus. So this is the third. And please mark it in orange as soon as you get home. It's a lovely one. In Titus chapter 2, verse 13. And I'll begin verse 11 and read it through so that we get a little bit of the context. 
And we have to thank an MP for our understanding here, but I'll tell you about him in just a minute. In Titus 2, verse 11 to 13, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you see? That's a statement of the divinity of Christ. Do you see that? The great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, there was an MP whose name was Granville Sharp. G-R-A-N-V-I-L-L-E hyphen S-H-A-R-P. I don't know which party he stood for, but I think I can guess. And Mr. Granville Sharp came along, and he was a Christian, but he was confused about the Trinity. And he looked at the various verses, and he came to Titus 2, verse 13. And he knew that the Jehovah's Witness says, oh no, this is two different people, that we should look for, one, the great God, and two, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And he said, well, the Christians tell me it's one person, who's right? And being a Greek scholar himself, praise the Lord for these MPs who are Greek scholars, they seem to have a lot of time on their hands, he did what our, our dear friend Colwell did. He got every Greek text he could lay his hands on. And he went through looking for the construction that you have here. Now what do you have here? You've got a name, great God, with the article in front, the. Then you have the word and, or kai, K-A-I, as it is in Greek. And then you have a name without the article. And what he wanted to prove was that if you have an and with a name and the article and a name without the article, that the two names on either side of the and refer to the same person. That's what he wanted to do. He went through every Greek text and he found without exception that it always did. And this is why in Greek we have another rule, the Granville Sharp rule. The Granville Sharp rule says this, a name with the article and the word and followed by a name without the article always refer to the same person. In English, it's obvious, isn't it? If you said the great warrior and leader Montgomery, it's obvious that both titles refer to Montgomery. Of course they do. I mean, you're not talking about two people, the great leader, oh, and leader Montgomery. It's not that at all. Or the great bell ringer and hunchback, Quasimodo. <laughs> it's referring to the both. Quasimodo wasn't just a hunchback, he was a bell ringer. Do you see that? So there's the basic rule. And the Granville Sharp rule applies in every case. Of course, the Jehovah's Witnesses have never heard of the Granville Sharp rule because they've only done three weeks of Greek. <laughs> right? They're experts all the same in this. Right? And a little knowledge, you know, is a very dangerous thing. Do you know that? And so what does the Granville Sharp rule say here? Well, it says this, that you have the great God and you've got the word Savior, Jesus Christ, and they refer to the same person. In other words, Jesus Christ is our Savior, yes. He's also the great God. This is a positive statement of the divinity of Jesus Christ. Well, just one or two others. All right, I could go on. Um, Hebrews 1, verse 1 to verse 3. I'm sorry if I've rushed through those Greek rules. I don't want to fog anyone out tonight. 
you know, but it's interesting to know that they're there, isn't it? Look at this in uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 3, and I don't have to say a word about this because it's obviously referring to Jesus as God. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, the brightness of the glory of God, and the express image of his person. Do you see that? That's the same that we saw, isn't it, in Colossians chapter 1. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he hath himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And then in verse 8, another statement of the divinity of Christ. Hebrews 1.8 But unto the Son God saith, Thy throne, O God, is for ever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Now there are plenty of other scriptures as well. And you might perhaps read through the New Testament with this in mind. You'll soon locate them. One lovely thing you might do is to see a description of God in the Old Testament. And then you read in the book of Revelation and it's the same description given of the Lord Jesus Christ. It definitely is one and the same. Who is Jesus Christ? He is God himself. A separate personality, yes, from the Father and from the Holy Spirit, but he is God. Right, so that's the first and largest category. Jesus Christ clearly said in the New Testament to be God. The others are much shorter and we can complete them easily within the time. So let's go on to number two now. Where in the New Testament is the Holy Spirit said to be divine? And here you go to a most unlikely chapter. Let's go to the book of Acts and chapter 5, where we get the Ananias and Sapphira incident. Ananias and Sapphira. Now you wouldn't dream of looking in this chapter, would you, for a proof of the divinity of Jesus Christ. But here it is. You remember Ananias and Sapphira? They said they were 100% sold out, and they weren't. It was a lie. And Peter is given discernment by the Holy Spirit that they have lied. And in verse 3, Peter says this, But Peter saith, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Do you see there that clearly Ananias and Sapphira are said to have lied to the Holy Ghost? Well, now read on in verse 4. Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. In verse 3, they lie to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, it's said to be lying to God. There's a direct proof that the Holy Spirit is God and the Holy Spirit is divine. So this is an amazing thing. Father's divine, Jesus is divine, the Holy Spirit's divine, yet they're one God. Whether you can understand it or not, that is the Trinity. And we've got a triune God. One other statement that I would make in this category, in 2 Corinthians, we'll have covered most books by the time we finished tonight, In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. That sound is not the Jehovah's Witnesses rumbling in anger. There's a thunderstorm going on. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, and those of you who were here for the first Bible study I gave on the Trinity will now understand why this is a statement of the divinity of the Holy Spirit. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And do you remember that we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that no man can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And we saw that at the time that Jesus lived, the emperor was claiming to be divine, and the title that marked him out as divine was the title Curios, Lord. And when Jesus was proclaimed as Lord, he hated it because Jesus was stated to be God. Here, the Holy Spirit is, takes the title of Curios, for the Lord is the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit here is said to be divine. Now there's another statement of it. Well, there are just two. I think that's enough. You can find others. It only takes one, and we've got it. So the third point now, let's go to that. The third point, Jesus is worshipped in the New Testament. Do you know that as far as the Bible is concerned, it is very clearly stated that God and God alone is to be worshipped? Do you know that? No man was to be worshipped and no angel was to be worshipped. It was an abomination as far as God was concerned. And do you remember in Lystra, after the cripple had been healed, the people start worshipping Paul and Barnabas. They start thinking, the gods have come down to us. Oh, and they start worshipping. And Paul and Barnabas are furious. They say, don't do it. Don't do it. And they say, there's only one God. And they start telling them about him. They stop than worshipping a man, because it was blasphemy to worship a man. In Revelation 22, we see that angels are not to be worshipped either. Let's go to that in uh, Revelation chapter 22, where John forgets himself. Poor old John, quite overcome. He's seeing this sort of videotape that's going on of all the events that are to come. Right? He's never seen anything like it in his life before. It is so amazing. And at the end of it, he can't remember who he is or where he is. He's absolutely beside himself. And the angel, there's been an angel. Great stuff. There has been an angel. A large thunderclap. I'm explaining that for people on the tapes. Right? <laughs> I wonder what we're laughing at. I take that as an affirmation, yes, right? <laughs> Poor old John really doesn't know what happened. And in verse 8, look what happens. And I saw John, and I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I'd heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. There he is. And here's the angel, the interpreting angel, who's taken him on this path through these amazing things. And John falls flat on his face and begins worshipping the angel. Verse 9, he's rebuked for it. Then saith he unto me, See, thou do it not. For I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. Now there's a statement. Don't worship an angel. Don't worship man. Worship God instead. Now here is the amazing thing. If you read in the Gospels, time after time after time, Jesus is worshipped and no one stops them. Jesus doesn't stop them worshipping him. Do you remember the wise men, the shepherds came. What did the wise men do? They came and worshipped the child and no one stopped them. The leper, 
Do you remember what happened? He was healed. He came and worshipped. What did Legion do at Gadara, right, with the Gadarene swine just about to die? What did he do? Legion, with 6,000 demons in him, he rushes up to Jesus, falls flat on his uh, knees, and he worships at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say, don't do that. Only worship God. Jesus allows him to worship. You see? All right. You don't believe me? You go through young sometime and look up the number of times that Jesus is worshipped. Let us go to the Gospel of Matthew and have a look at a couple of these. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. He has to be God if this is going on. By the way, if he's not God, what are our meetings about? How can we sing, only Jesus is worthy to be praised, be worshipped and adored? How can you sing it? If he's not God, it's blasphemy. You can't do it. All our meetings should change fundamentally, and Jesus should not be mentioned. Praise God, it's because of the divinity of Christ that we can gather as we do. And it's not a bad thing to worship at the feet of Jesus. He's God, and you can worship God in Christ. Verse 18, While he spake these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay thine hand upon her, and she shall live. He worships there. In Matthew 14, right, after Peter has failed to walk on the sea. I'll let you know when I can do it. I live right by the sea, as you know. Do you remember? And he begins to slip. And Jesus stretches forth his hand and he says, Oh, thou of little faith, why did thy doubt, th- thou doubt And in verse 32 and verse 33, And when they came into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying of a truth, Thou art the Son of God. You see, worshipping Jesus. One other, although the Gospels are teeming with instances. Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Verse 16 and 17. After his uh, resurrection, of course, Matthew twenty-eight, sixteen, and 17. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And do you see? They worshipped at the feet of Jesus. Now there he is. So when we say that Jesus is worshipped, it's an important statement. And any Jehovah's Witness has to answer this question. How come Jesus can be worshipped when it's blasphemy to do so? And you just point out some of these scriptures to them. So that's the next one. And last of all, let's have a look at the fourth heading. That is passages in the New Testament where the Trinity are mentioned together. Now, of course, there is one in Matthew 28, verse 19. I deal with this on my baptism tape. I accept that the Trinity is here. Some believers do not. But it says, Go go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And some say, No, 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 that's not what it says. It should be baptizing them in the name of the Son. 
or in the name of the Lord, or whatever it is, you see. However, there's one say, but if we don't want to use that, there are other places anyway, right? The Mount of Transfiguration is one. But let's go to the baptism of Jesus, because we haven't been in Luke yet, as far as I remember. So let's go to Luke and chapter 3, and let's see at the baptism of Jesus how the three are mentioned together here. Do you remember I said in the first talk, God is not a quick-change artist, appearing as the Father one minute, dashing off the stage, coming back on as the Son the next minute, rushing off, changing his clothes, and appearing as the Holy Spirit the next minute. No. Here is one passage where he appears, where God appears, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together. Jesus is being baptized. Verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also, being baptized, also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened. So Jesus is there in the water. Verse 22. And the Holy Ghost descended upon him in bodily shape like a dove upon him. There's the Holy Spirit. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son. Who's that speaking? Well, the one who says he's the Son is the Father. Looks at Jesus and says, You are my Son. And Jesus looks at him and says, You are my Father. There's the Father speaking. Thou art my beloved Son. In thee I am well pleased. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father found together in this particular passage. So there you are, you see. There are a lot of references here in the New Testament to the Trinity and specifically to the divinity of Jesus Christ. And when a Jehovah's Witness comes and says, show me one passage, right, you've got plenty to choose from. However, I want to end the Bible study tonight by actually reminding ourselves of the unity of the Father. Because the glorious thing about, uh, of the Godhead, because the glorious thing about our God is that although he's three in personality, he is always one in essence. And sometimes if you read your Bible, you know it's hard to tell who's speaking. It says God is speaking, but who's talking? And sometimes it's hard to know which member of the Godhead is doing what. It really is very difficult to ascertain it. And you know sometimes they don't want you to know. Because they work in such unity together that you can't separate them. But I'm going to take one instant, and I'm going to take the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we ask the question, who raised Jesus from the dead, what answer do you give? Some immediately say, oh, but the Father did. Some immediately say, ah, oh, but the Holy Spirit did. But do you know that the Bible says all three did it? Right? That's what the Bible declares. Let's see two passages, first of all, where Jesus is said to have raised himself from the dead. We go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. The Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 19. I'm glad I'm getting this on tape at last. Some years ago at a university, a chap came up to me and says, oh, it said this, oh, in one of your early tapes, you say that Jesus raised himself from the dead. Where's the scripture that proves it? And you know, I've forgotten, Right? And he said, well, if ever you do a tape with it on, do write and tell me. And so I'll be writing to tell him now. It's finally on. This is just for you, my brother. John chapter 2, verse 19, and Jesus says this. Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple. And he meant his body. And in three days I will raise it up. Positive statement. Another one, John 10, 18. John 10, 18, again Jesus raising himself from the dead. 
No man taketh my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again, says Jesus. This commandment have I received of my Father. Now, there are two statements that Jesus will raise himself from the dead. But the Father said to raise him from the dead. Let's go to Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Those of you who were worried in case Galatians didn't get a look in. Galatians, there are many passages I've, I could have gone to, but this is the one I've chosen. Galatians 1.1 1, 1. Paul, an apostle. Galatians 1.1 1, 1. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. There's a statement. Who raised him from the dead? Father did. But hold on, I thought you said Jesus did. Yes, they both did. Well, well, well. What about the Holy Spirit? Ah, clear statement. Also made. Let's go to Peter. Right, 1 Peter 3, 18. This is our last scripture for tonight. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And the word quickened means made alive. Being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive by the Spirit. There's a statement of fact. And there are others again that I could have chosen. Who raised Jesus from the dead? I'll tell you who did it. God did it. That's who. The God who is one in essence, but three in personality. Our triune God. The unique God of the whole universe. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who love one another and who are totally inseparable. That's who raised Christ from the dead. And in all things, they move together. Not once has Jesus ever disagreed with the Father. Not once has the Holy Spirit ever disagreed with Jesus. They work and move as one, for we worship not three gods, but we worship only one God. Now, these scriptures that I've been through last time and tonight prove clearly that we have a triune God. Let's ask God to give us a revelation of what the Trinity is all about. From now on, we're going to deal with the attributes of God, and one of the things I'm going to do uh, in each Bible study is I'm going to show you at least one passage to prove that each attribute refers to the Father, each attribute refers to the Son, and each attribute refers to the Holy Spirit. And in that way, too, we'll be seeing a constant proof of the Trinity right the way through. Next time, therefore, the attributes of God and specifically dealing with God's sovereignty. Now, one thing I just want to say by way of ending... I've dealt with Colwell's rule, I've dealt with the Granville Sharp rule, but obviously I haven't stated them accurately. There is at the back of this auditorium tonight a printed sheet which actually state, but in more detail and much more accurately, these two rules, the Colwell rule and the Granville Sharp rule. Anyone who is interested, please take one. They're not easy to understand, but if you are interested to work through, please take it. For those who are listening on tape, if you send uh, your next tape order in and you ask for one of these sheets, it will be sent to you. If you have no more tapes to be ordered, just send us a stamp 
and we'll provide the envelope and send you a copy anyway. All right, address it to the normal tape address. Let's just pray before we end. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for the clarity that the Word of God gives. Father, the more we study this Word, we, the more we have to recognize it is only the hand of God that could have written this book, a book that agrees with itself from beginning to end. Father, we thank you that no man could have devised it, and certainly not the many writers who lived over many centuries. Oh, Father, we thank you that when we handle the Word of God, we're handling your own precious Word. And I pray, Father, that each one of us might recognize that the Word of God is of crucial essence above everything else in these days. And Father, I pray that none of us should be sidetracked from that, that the Word of God should go forth. Thank you it contains the words of life for personal salvation. Thank you it contains the way to run a society. Thank you it contains the way to run our personal home lives and bring up our children. Thank you it is the source book for all that you are and all that you say. Father, send an anointing that we might understand what the Spirit of God is saying to the church today, even through the Word of God. Please just bless all my brothers and sisters, and Father, keep them safe on the journey home tonight. In the name of Jesus, amen.